Mark chapter 2, uh, if you've been reading with us in our, in our Bible reading plan, we read, or if you're where I'm at, uh, we read Mark chapter 2 today. We finished 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, and now we've jumped back into one of the gospel accounts in the New Testament. Earlier in the year, we read Luke, and uh, now we're going to be spending uh, the next several days, a couple of weeks, in uh, the gospel of Mark. And so that's where we will jump off uh, a little bit tonight. So Mark chapter 2, uh, verses 13 through 17, that's where we will be uh, for the next several minutes. How many of you have ever heard of free diving? Anybody in here heard of free diving? Yeah? Pretty interesting kind of thing. Do you agree? For those of you who know what it is, thought about it, whatever. Um, free diving is pretty interesting. I want to tell you about this guy. I don't know if anybody knows who this is. His name is David Winkle. I don't know. Vink? Winkle. I don't know how to say it. But anyway, uh, <laughs> I, I recently uh, came across an article. This was back in March. Uh, it was from the New York Post, and it was about this particular guy. Uh, he broke a Guinness World Record for free diving. The record that he broke was the most depth in the coldest temperatures Ever. Now, free diving is on a single breath how far you can go in the water before you've got to come back up. Apparently, it's a pretty thrilling thing. Um, I can't hold my breath for very long, so I wouldn't be able to go very far. Uh, but anyway, this guy in particular is a, is a pretty interesting case study. He went over 170 feet in the frozen tundra of Switzerland. But here's what the, the New York Post article wrote. It said the 40-year-old Czech diver took just one breath before diving through a hole drilled in the ice in a lake in Switzerland to retrieve a sticker placed 170.9 feet below the surface to prove how far he actually went. The article went on. It said that he emerged from the same hole after 1 minute and 54 seconds, spat out some blood, and opened a bottle of champagne. And so the celebration began. Uh, for the record uh, that he broke. So free diving, never really done it myself, single breath of air, no tanks, no tubes, no oxygen of any kind. Uh, that's, that's what the, the sport or the recreation consists of. I looked up for fun, the longest anyone has ever held their breath. Does anybody have any guesses? Twenty-four minutes and thirty-seven seconds. His name is Budimir Sobat. Never met Budimir, uh, but apparently he can hold his breath for a really long time. Anyone want to guess the maximum depth reached by anyone in a single breath? According to records, the deepest free dive that's ever happened. Now, this guy broke a record for the coldest farthest, but just typical everyday temperatures of the lake. Um, anybody want to guess the farthest free dive? <laughs> it's really close. Is that, is you, are you fact-checking me right now? <laughs> According to Google, all right, let me... Let me make my, my, my intentions clear. According to Google, it was 702 feet. One breath diving to 702 feet depth. 
Now, I, I'll be honest, I Googled several things and there was all kinds of answers, but these are the ones I like. So anyway, uh, you, can, you can Google that and look up some things on your own. But anyway, I was thinking about this because there's, a, there's an old article or, or uh, illustration that's used in a book by Eric Geiger and Jeff Borton. And what they did was they compared free diving to our relationship with Jesus. Here's what they wrote. They said, beginning free divers are snorkelers. These people are comfortable swimming on or near the surface of the water. Expert free divers can reach depths of 100 feet. Competitive free divers dive to 500 feet deep or more. They went on to write, they said, whether you are free diving down to 20 feet or 80 feet, you must know and understand your limitations and how to respond to various depths. A person who has never been diving before isn't taken to 80-foot depths of the ocean and dropped overboard. Unless, of course, the person has crossed the wrong people and the guy throwing him overboard is named Big Tony or Joey Bag of Donuts. They go on, diving to great depths isn't a starting point. Free divers don't dive to 80 feet until time is spent learning how to handle the pressures and complexities of diving at shallower depths. Deep water dives don't happen until the diver is confident with the shallow water dives. The shallow water is the beginning. The deep water is the goal. Now, I was reading about free diving, actually a whole lot more than I planned on reading about free diving, and it really made me think of some events that took place when Jesus called Levi or Matthew to begin following after him. This is one of the calls of some of the early disciples. It's found in Mark chapter 2, beginning in verse 13. Here's what Mark records. He says, he went out, talking about Jesus, he went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as he reclined at table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Now it's clear to me, especially from this particular account, that Jesus had a mission to accomplish. He came to save sinners why Jesus came. Jesus didn't expect us to be perfect, and he didn't call those early disciples because they were perfect. As a matter of fact, if he was looking for perfect disciples, guess what? He wouldn't have had any, right? Rather, he started with broken people who would become more like him, learn how to follow him, and begin to serve him more and more over time. Just like free diving, we follow Jesus, become more like Jesus, one breath at a time, one step, one day. One dive after the next. It's a process that starts in the shallow end. I was thinking about this, and it was just kind of 
wrapping my brain around it. I thought about this process of free diving. I thought about my relationship with Jesus. I thought about the process that goes from the first time I met him to celebrating my new life with him to being called out by other people to struggling with what's right and what's wrong and what traditions should I uphold and which ones do I ignore and what does Jesus tell me to do and how do I uh, continue to be obedient to his word and I wrestled with this particular idea of how quickly we oftentimes forget the process how quickly do we become legalistic and impatient with others how quickly do we judge and condemn and set standards that Jesus didn't set And several things, as I read through this passage, stood out instantly in my mind. And to be honest, I want to share just a few of them with you tonight. I want to share with you just in particular the random thoughts that were bouncing around as I went through this passage. And I want to sum it up with some practical things that I know for me were extremely helpful. And I hope that is also the case for you. So I want to show you, here's the first one. If you have an outline, you can certainly use it. I want to show you the crowd. If you look back at Mark chapter 2, verse 13, we quickly notice something rather interesting, in my opinion, that we probably gloss over most of the time that we read about the encounters of Jesus. It says he went out again beside the sea, which in other words just shows us how often he went out, how often he found people, how often he wanted to be around those who needed him. So he went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. Now, I want to focus in on just this idea of all the crowd was coming to him. Now, here's Jesus again going out by the sea, which probably links this account with the calling of the first disciples in Mark chapter 1, verses 16 through 20. A lot of things happen between what Mark chapter 1 and Mark chapter 2, especially if you read the other gospel accounts, but I think we forget that Jesus was in the same area when all of these things were happening as he was calling his earliest followers to follow after him. He's back around the Sea of Galilee where he met those first disciples who were fishermen, and now he will meet another soon-to-be disciple who is a tax collector. He seems to gain his bounty from taxing those particular businesses, probably the ones that have to do with fishing. And all the crowd was coming to him. Now, this is a common theme during the ministry of Jesus. Matter of fact, if you read through the gospel accounts, you will find this particular setting happening over and over and over. What setting? Crowds of people following Jesus, flocking to him, wanting to know more, wanting to hear him teach, wanting to be in his presence, wanting to see his miracles, hear his message, whatever the case may be, the crowds constantly wanted to be around Jesus. His fame spread quickly once his ministry began. And it really made me think about one thing in particular. Shouldn't crowds still be following Jesus today, right? Like, shouldn't they still be wanting to flock to the miracles and the message and the morals and the ministry and the majesty that is Jesus. Like, shouldn't that still be the response of people as they encounter Christ? Shouldn't the masses be finding their way to Him? Do we still see this happen? Crowds is always an interesting thing for me to process through. The next thing I want you to see is the curriculum. You say, Danny, what do you mean? 
Well, Peter wants us to notice that once the crowds were there, Jesus was teaching them. Now, maybe you're thinking, Danny, why do you say Peter? Well, I say Peter because historically, it's Peter who's telling John Mark what to write as he pins the gospel of Mark. This is the same John Mark who accompanied Paul and Barnabas on their missionary journeys. The same one that Paul and Barnabas split their missionary journeys over because of his attitude. Peter, talking to John Mark, as he pins down these words, reminds us and hones in on the fact that as the crowds came, Jesus taught. Now you say, Danny, why does this stand out in your mind? Well, it's pretty simple for me. Can you imagine what it would have been like to learn from Jesus? Matter of fact, just think about this for a moment. Could you imagine if instead of me, I know, hard to think about, every midweek service you would come rather than gathering to hear what I say about the Bible, but you gather in this room to hear what Jesus has to say about the Bible? What if he was the one who led our midweek Bible study? Also, have you ever wondered, when you think about him teaching the crowds, what was he teaching? What was he saying to them? How many things was he teaching that maybe we don't know about? So many things that he said that aren't written. As a matter of fact, John tells us if he wrote everything, there wouldn't be enough libraries in the world to contain all of the words. Can you imagine what it must have been like to sit at his feet hear him teach, and what it was that he was teaching about. What do you think was more awesome? His miracles or his messages? I was thinking about what it would be like to sit under the teaching of Jesus, and then it kind of hit me a little bit in my office when I'm reading over this. Jesus is still teaching us every single day. You say, Danny, what do you mean? How much meaningful time do you spend with him in his word? Because listen, he still wants you to sit at his feet so that he can give you the greatest curriculum ever written so that he can teach you the greatest truths you will ever need to know. I thought about the crowds sitting at the feet of Jesus' teachings. And then I thought, Forget the crowds. How often does Danny sit at the feet of Jesus' teachings? He's still preaching. Are we listening? I'll show you something else that popped out as I was reading through this. Certainly the crowd at his feet, the curriculum. I don't know what he was teaching, but it had to be amazing. I want to show you this one, though, the, the, the candidate. Jesus is about to call another disciple, but I would dare say that if it was you or me, he's not exactly the candidate that we would choose as our first choice. Here's what Mark wrote in verse number 14. And as he passed by, of course, once again, talking about Jesus, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, invitation, follow me. And he rose, talking about Levi, and followed Jesus. Now, I settled in a little bit on this particular name, this guy named Levi, this son of Alphaeus who's sitting at the tax booth. Now, as Jesus is teaching on the shore of the Sea of Galilee, which, by the way, is pretty normal context for Jesus, he finds Levi. 
Now, you can read this account. It's not only in Mark's Gospel. It's also in Matthew 9. It's also in Luke chapter 5. However, there's an interesting phrase that's used in Mark that's not used anywhere else. And it's the phrase, the son of Alphaeus. Now, Matthew's Gospel refers to him by a different name. Mark and Luke both call him Levi. Mark calls him Levi, the son of Alphaeus. Matthew calls him Matthew rather than Levi. Also, the list of the original 12 disciples all refer to him as Matthew. You can read the account in multiple Gospels. All of them have the name Matthew. And in Matthew's list, in Matthew chapter 10, he's referred to as Matthew the tax collector. So who is this guy? Who is Levi? Well, I want to give you a couple of things that I just think are fascinating. I don't know that any of them are true, but I just like them as I was reading them. So I'm going to share them with you. One of those is that he's possibly the brother of another disciple, this being James, not big time James. This James is often nicknamed James the Lesser, which, by the way, is probably not typically the nickname you want. But in the list of disciples, he's referred to as James, the son of Alphaeus. Well, there's somebody else in the Gospels that's referred to in the same way. His name is Levi, the son of Alphaeus. So some people think that possibly Matthew or Levi and James were brothers. This would not be the only set of brothers that Jesus called to be his disciples, so this could be the case. Although Alphaeus is a name that many people had, so maybe they just both had a dad whose name was Alphaeus, right? So either way, don't really know about that. Another thing that's interesting about Levi, this is provided from John Phillips, is that maybe his name, Levi, wasn't so much about how he was addressed, but rather referred more to who he was. Let me explain. Here's what John Phillips writes on his perspective of Levi. He says he was evidently of the tribe of Levi, the tribe set apart by God to minister to the other tribes in sacred things. What does that mean? What were the Levites in charge of? Temple, right? Worship, right? They were the priests. So this is the thought that this commentator has. Levi may not be a name as much as it describes the tribe that he was from. Now he goes on. Here's why this is significant. It must have been a bitter disappointment to his parents when young Matthew, whose name means gift of Jehovah, turned his back on the legal profession of being a priest to get rich quickly at any cost, even at the cost of losing his character by becoming a tax collector. Now what's interesting about this thought, by the way, we don't know this, speculation, but if his name is Matthew and Levi is a nickname because he is a Levite, then it's fascinating that a person who should have been a pastor in their area has now become a publican who they despise for the wickedness and the greed and the thievery that was their lives. As a parent, you had these big plans of what your kid's going to do as a Levite, and they go full, you know, turn the other way and do the one thing you hope they never would. This would be an interesting perspective if this is, in fact, the truth about Levi. Although there is another tradition that's interesting as well. This tradition holds that Levi, who we know more commonly as Matthew, is also the author of the Gospel of Matthew, our first Gospel account chronologically in the New Testament. 
Now, we don't know exactly who Levi is, but all of these things about him make him particularly an interesting case study. However, because we don't know who he is, and because the attention is given less to his name and more to his profession, I think it's probably more important that we focus not on his family ties, but on the fact that he is a tax collector, or your Bible might read, publican. It's likely that he was in charge of the customs booth outside of Capernaum, possibly on the famous road Via Maris, the main trade route that passed by the city. Probably he collected taxes on trade goods and business ventures for Herod Antipas. As ships would dock in Capernaum, they would have to go past this booth, pay their tax, or maybe more what we would think of as a toll, and then they could continue to conduct business. Now, the fishing trade was a lucrative business, and if Matthew is actually the customs collector, he was extremely wealthy. As a matter of fact, I heard one commentator mention that he has an office by the sea. just thought that was kind of fun. Now, I was thinking about this because if it is a customs agent, who's collecting taxes and tolls in any way that he wants to because really you're at you know, his disposal and you can't get to the next place without doing whatever he asks you. It made me think about my most recent trip to Belize. Now, most of you know that our church partners with a school there, and uh, we do a lot of ministry there, and we are, we are certainly you know, thankful for that partnership. But it was my first time going to Belize. And so here's what I discovered we do. We pack a whole lot of things in random suitcases that are gifts for them, and we sneak them into Belize, and we give them out as gifts. What they don't tell you is, you may randomly carry all these bags that don't have your name on them, and you have to try to pass through customs in a foreign country. That happened to me. So let me tell you what took place. They opened those bags that had random names on them that were not my own, they looked inside these bags and thought, what is all this mess? And they looked at the guy whose name that didn't match and asked me, and I said, you know what? I have no idea what's in any of those bags. Red flags everywhere, right? So here's what happened. Our translator guy walked up, said a few words to the customs guy so that I could enter the country, and here's what the customs guy said. They said, if he'll give us $200, he could take whatever bags he wants to into the country. So guess what I did as I'm waiting to get into Belize and the rest of the team is already loaded up in a van. <laughs> I gave the guy all the cash that was in my pocket. You say, why? I couldn't get into the country without it, right? This is kind of the picture of Levi. He could charge, do, ask, whatever he wanted to, because guess what? If you wanted to do business in Capernaum, you had to go through Levi. Now, most of us have heard about how the Jews felt about tax collectors in their day, right? This is not an uncommon theme. A tax collector was often one of the, their, their own people working for the enemy Romans to steal and cheat people out of their money. This is the case with the customs agents, right? Tax If you are a customs agent, by the way, I don't mean that offensive. So anyway, side note there. Tax collectors would often add additional fees and taxes in order to become rich by taking from their own people. Matter of fact, according to Jewish tradition, a tax collector would render a home unclean just by walking in the door. According to the Jewish scholar Alfred Edersheim, 
a Jewish publican was barred from the synagogue and was forbidden to have any religious or social contact with his fellow Jews. He was ranked with the unclean animals, which a devout Jew would not so much as touch. He was in the class of swine, and because he was held to be a traitor and a liar, he was ranked with robbers and murderers and was forbidden to give testimony in any Jewish court. Now, I only tell that to you because of this. Levi didn't have quite the noble profession like the fishermen that Jesus had already called to be his disciples. He would have been despised not only by the Romans that he worked for, but the Jewish guys that he would have to be following Jesus with. He would be the most unlikely candidate to become a disciple of Jesus. Matter of fact, you can read several accounts of how a tax franchise would even become your own what you would do based on bribery, what you would do to bid for it, what you would do to have workers under you, and how much money you would steal and take from anybody you wanted to because it was pretty much a license to take whatever you wanted. Think about it. Levi could ask for anything, and the Romans would give him authority to ask for anything, and as long as he paid them what they wanted, he could ask as much as he wanted on top of that for himself. This guy's not exactly the most outstanding candidate to be a disciple. What's interesting, though, that happens next is the call. We know all these things about him, and even more because he's a tax collector, yet Jesus said, follow me. And to my shock is this, not only that Jesus would issue the invitation, because this candidate is not the type of person that we would choose out of our churches, right? Like, this is not the guy. What's more interesting to me than the invitation from Jesus is the fact that Matthew rose and followed him. Like, why would Jesus want the tax collector, and why would the tax collector want Jesus? They don't seem to go together. Yet this is exactly what happened. Now, can you imagine the chaos that Jesus, this rabbi, the one who is the coming Messiah, can you imagine the chaos that he has just called by calling someone equal to the social standing of a prostitute to follow him? This moment is one of the most incredible reminders to me in all of Scripture. It's one of those moments that Paul reminded us of in some of our recent Bible readings from 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Listen to what Paul wrote. My grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. Here's what he wrote. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Oftentimes, what we think is unfit, God uses for something great. Listen, I don't know about you, but I'm glad He takes the weak and makes them strong. I'm glad Jesus calls the sinners and the tax collectors of the world. Listen to what Paul wrote back in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. He said, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to the world's standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that 
are. This moment immediately reminds me that I don't deserve the call that Jesus issued to me, but He came to save sinners, which is us. I'm also reminded of the obedience and repentance required to follow Jesus. Listen, Luke's account of this same thing probably gives us a little bit better picture of what happened with Matthew. Here's what Luke wrote in Luke 5, 28. This is the description after Jesus said, follow me. You ready? Here's what Luke wrote. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. Now think about that for a moment. Huge tax collector over this customs area in Capernaum could ask people whatever he wanted. Who knows what was his? I don't know what it looked like for Matthew to leave everything, but I can tell you this, his everything was a lot of things. And Luke says he left it all for Jesus. Here's all I could think about as I was reading those words. Have we? Have we left it all? Are we like Matthew? Is this my testimony? Leaving everything. Danny followed Jesus. Is that us? Certainly this isn't the first time Jesus has encountered Levi or Levi has encountered Jesus. Jesus in this area, man, He's done lots of ministry. He's been around the Sea of Galilee. Had they talked, had Levi witnessed miracles or teachings, I, I don't know to the extent of the relationship before this moment between Levi and Jesus, but apparently he had seen enough, he had heard enough about Jesus to leave everything and follow Him. As a matter of fact, I read this little poem this week. Here's what the author wrote. I hear Him call, come follow, that was all. My gold grew dim, my heart went after Him. I rose and followed, that was all. Would you not follow if you heard Him call? I can tell you right now, Matthew would. The question is, will you? One other interesting side note that I thought was fascinating from another commentator was Jesus, in this particular statement, follow me, really literally probably means follow with me. This guy wrote, Jesus did not simply say for Levi to come after him, but to walk with him. He was to associate himself with Jesus in his spiritual enterprise. It appears that he may have been a man of extreme means. If this be a proper surmise, then Jesus commanded him to change partners and to become his partner. Previously, he had challenged four fishermen to now become fishers of men. So now he called Levi to form a spiritual partnership with him. He spoke to men in terms of their present position and understanding and said, take that and follow me. Now think if that's true. Just an interesting thought. How much of the ministry of Jesus could have been funded by Matthew, an old wretched tax collector who went from thief to disciple of Christ? Now listen, I don't know what kind of means you have. I don't know what kind of talents you have. I don't know what kind of gifts you have. I don't know where you are in your life. But when I read that, whether it's true or not, here's what I thought about. Jesus isn't changing you 
and you get saved, and all of a sudden now you you know got to go find a new job or a new place to live or a new family or a new no, no no. He's saving you right where you are, and he wants to use everything that you have for his glory. I think about this, and I go, man, he took some fishermen and said, now fish for me. And I wonder, did he take a rich tax collector and said, hey, now instead of cheating people out of their money, I want you to use it to change the world. I thought to myself, what would happen if we had that kind of mindset where we gave up everything, not just for him in the sense of it's gone, but to him, with him, in the sense that he can now use everything we have for his name. Let me show you this next one because now I'm just rambling. The company. The crowds intrigued me. The curriculum, I don't know what he taught, but it had to be awesome. The candidate, are you kidding me? Levi, no way. The call, you want that to be your disciple, but it gets a little more interesting in my opinion, and that's the company that Jesus is about to keep. It's back in Mark 2, 15. It says, and as he reclined at table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. Now Luke's account, once again, gives us a little more personal nature of what's taking place in this moment. This is Luke 5, verse 29. Listen to what it says. And Levi made him a great feast in his house, and there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table with them. I read this guy named Grant Osborne. He was talking about the particular context of this writing. Here's what he said said, Levi has a banquet to introduce Jesus to his friends. As was common in Palestine in the first century, the participants are following the Roman custom of reclining on couches around a small table containing food. Jesus may also be the implied host since they were reclining with Jesus. This is often called table fellowship. You determined your friends and marked off the segment of society that you accepted by sharing meals. That's the perspective on what's happening with this banquet. Shortly after Levi decides to follow Jesus, what does he do? He throws a party and he invites all of his friends so that they too can have the opportunity to leave everything and follow after Jesus. I was reading, I was thinking about processing, and I was going, is this how we respond to our salvation in Jesus? Are we inviting our friends to meet the one who can change everything? This word sinners is pretty interesting. It could be a reference to the common people, those who didn't follow the oral traditions as strenuously as the religious leaders did. However, it's more likely that the word refers to people who were considered to be bad people. This might include criminals, prostitutes, thieves, drunkards, murderers, or various Gentile peoples. This was common for Jesus to associate with people who the religious leaders would have stayed clear of. In fact, the average Jew would have stayed clear of. And don't miss this, because this is an important scene, what Jesus is doing custom-wise in this particular tradition. He is reclining with sinners that others would have nothing to do with. And by the way, in case you're wondering, well, Jesus was going to reach sinners. He's Jesus. I'm not. I agree with those statements. But don't miss this little phrase that's in there. Sinners were reclining with Jesus, dot, 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 you ready? And His 
disciples. So guess who Jesus brought with him into the mix to reach sinners in a lost world? He brings his disciples so that they could experience what it was like to leave the comfort of their own traditions and reach a world that was on their way to hell. He's saying, I didn't just come to reach sinners. I'm going to send you to reach sinners. I wonder what the other disciples were thinking. Outstanding Jews who were honest, hard workers, now associating with the very people that they were told to stay away from. What would they talk about? What would they think about? How awkward must they have felt in this setting? Mark also includes the phrase, for there were many who followed Him. There were many of these sinners who followed after Jesus. Now I think this is an interesting phrase. I don't want to over-spiritualize it because I don't think Mark is thinking necessarily about salvation when he uses the word followed. However, he does use it moments before when he stated that Levi followed him. So it made me, made me focus back a little bit on my own judgment of people. Why do I always feel the need to compare myself to others in order to seem better off? Anybody? Why do I need to look at someone else's decisions in order to make my own seem better? Many sinners follow Jesus. And by the way, we are some of those. Let me go fast. i got to finish. I want to show you the critics. This is the interesting moment that I oftentimes find myself in, by the way. Especially the longer I follow Jesus, I find myself becoming more like these guys. Verse 16, and the scribes of the Pharisees. There they are, the fun people, right? When they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples... Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? Now, most of the scribes at this time were Pharisees. They were concerned with why Jesus would eat with sinners and tax collectors. Now, remember, we already talked about this. This isn't like eating at a restaurant where there are sinners and tax collectors present. He's eating together with them, implying social acceptance. Now, I also want to give you a perspective of Pharisees. I wish we had more time to read about them, but I feel like most of the time in our minds, because of what Jesus dealt with with the Pharisees and the Gospels, we always think the Pharisees were terrible people. But I want you to know that if you go back and study a history of Pharisees, they did incredible things for the Jewish nation. They were a, a pillar in that faith. They helped them move through captivities over and over and continued to keep them faithful in the Word of God when they transitioned over and over again and could have lost it all. Like these guys focused on some really important things. They accepted the Old Testament as Scripture. They believed in miracles. They believed in angels. They believed in the resurrection from the dead. And they held a strong messianic hope. You know what that means? They were the group of Jews who were looking for Jesus. They were not bad people. But they allowed their traditions and their way of thinking and their own preferences to get in the way of Jesus reaching the world. You know what happened? They put the good stuff in the way of the best stuff, and it became the worst stuff. They're the classic example of being sidetracked by good things and standing in the way of what Jesus wanted to do. Yet I would still think, as I thought about these guys, I would still think that they would be happy 
that a tax collector and his friends would be turning from their sinful actions, but they're not. Also, I thought about this. Why were they asking his disciples and not Jesus himself? Why did they go to them? Could it be that Jesus was in the middle of all these sinners and they couldn't go in that presence? Maybe. Could it be that the disciples weren't quite as close in there with the sinners? Maybe they were still on the outside going, I'm not really sure this is what I want to be doing yet. And so they kind of found them on the outskirts and asked them a few questions. I, I, don't, I don't know exactly what's happening, but I do know this. It takes time to change from what we've always known or been taught. As a matter of fact, some of you may be like me who grew up in church and have extremely legalistic understandings of being a Christian. Let me tell you something, friends. Jesus was tearing that down then, and He's still tearing it down today. He desires our obedience. He desires us to move away from sin, but not toward self-righteousness. He is cleansing both the Pharisee and the publican. Let me show this last thing, the conclusion. I'm going to finish, I promise. And when Jesus heard it, verse 17, He said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. You know what He's saying? He's saying, I'm here for the ones who know they need Me. I'm not going to waste my time with you guys who think you're too good, think you're in an area that doesn't need Me. I'm going to the people who know they're broken and who are ready to receive my grace being poured in. I will never forget this statement as long as I live. I don't know where it came from, but I love it. It's this. God can't pour His grace into a heart that's not broken. If it's sealed, it can't get in. So you know what He does? He goes to the broken heart because it's open to receive His grace. Friends, we don't want to be the Pharisees. We want to remember who we are, where we came from, why Jesus came to us. We want to remember what He's done in our life and how He wants to do it in other people's lives as well. Listen, in Matthew's Gospel, he adds an additional statement from Jesus. Here's what Matthew adds. This is in Matthew 9.13. He said, Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous but sinners. Jesus, quoting from Hosea 6.6, implying to us one simple truth. It wasn't the tradition that would save them. It was the truth, and the truth was Jesus. It was them realizing that the one who stood before them, the one in the midst of those sinners, the ones who were sick, He was the physician that could heal. And the moment that we come to Him is the moment that everything will change. I thought about those free divers, and I thought, man, we got to realize that the shallow end happens before the deep end. we got to remember that everybody's at different places in their walk with Jesus, and who are we to try to make ourselves out to be somebody better than we are? thought about this old quote from Kent Hughes, the first link between my soul and Christ is not my goodness, but my badness. Not my merit, but my misery. Not my standing, but my falling. Not my riches, but my need. And as I thought about that, and I reflected on this scripture, here was a couple of things in particular that I felt like Jesus was pointing out to my own heart. First of all, Jesus is still calling sinners to salvation. This moment with Levi and the other tax collectors and sinners is not the exception to the rule. <laughs> Jesus is still going to the places where sinners are. 
He's still saving those who are in need of him. The question that I have to ask myself is what's my role in Jesus calling sinners to salvation? Am I telling others about him? Am I giving my friends opportunities to meet him? He's still calling sinners. Am I a part of it? Secondly, Jesus had relationships with people who needed him. I thought about this. I actually wrote it out in my office. I tried to make a little map in my office. And I tried to list the relationships in my life of people that I don't think know Jesus. Can I tell you something? I didn't have anybody. I thought to myself, how are lost people going to meet Jesus if Jesus doesn't go to lost people? That's me. He's sending me to those people. If I have no relationships with people who need Jesus, then who am I going to tell about Jesus? Jesus had relationships with people who needed Him. Jesus had compassion on both the publican and the Pharisee. I always have to remind myself of this, by the way. I always want to put the Pharisee into a really bad category and the tax collectors and sinners, oh man, they wanted Jesus, that's awesome. I want to go to the people who are broken and I want to forget the cold-hearted people who are crusty and are hard to deal with. That's what I want to do. I want, man, that would just be so much easier. And then I have to remind myself, Jesus loved them both. You know what else I had to remind myself of? I'm both. <laughs> there are days where I certainly resonate more with the publican and there are other days where I relate a whole lot more to the Pharisee. And the last one was this, Jesus was concerned with obedience, not tradition. Tradition isn't our authority, truth is. Are we following Him? This morning, I was writing some things and finishing some stuff for tonight, and there was a particular chorus that I could not get out of my head. And I'll be honest, I didn't know why until a couple of hours ago. This is what the chorus was. You've probably heard it before. I remember when I was a kid, I feel like I heard this every single week when we were responding to a sermon. Here was the chorus. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in His wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of His glory and grace. And I thought this. Simple, practical, but true. What if our goal was just to keep our eyes on Jesus? Not worry about what we think is best or what somebody else should be doing or can't believe they're with them, can't believe they're over there, can't believe... Ah, ah, ah. What if instead we just kept our eyes on Jesus and said, Jesus, how can I follow you? How can I be obedient to you? Jesus, I want more of you. And I thought, man, please help me turn my eyes upon you.